last, some of you were here last week, and I kind of just went over, it was like, just kind of, I think it was like almost talking about my philosophy of Buddhism and what I'm teaching, and I decided that this week, I think I'm going to, I am, I'm not, I don't think, I am going to start at the beginning of uh, the Buddhist path, so to speak, and then just, just keep going, and the the teachings, well, some of you may, I'm sure most of you, or I shouldn't assume, I'm not assuming anything. Many of you know the um, Buddha's uh, life story and where he was uh, a well-off person, whatever that meant. Uh, a lot of times it's called, he said he's a prince, and other times he's just a feudal lord and you know, a tribal leader, um, but he was well off and his father protected him, didn't want him exposed to any difficulties in his life, hoping that he would become a a, a, a powerful warrior. Instead, his, he was given a, he was told when uh, Siddhartha Gautama was born that he was either going to be a spiritual leader or a, a great warrior. And his dad's like, yeah, we'll take warrior. So he thought protecting him from everything in the world would, would do that for some reason. And so the Buddha, uh, Gautama had the best of everything and wasn't exposed to any difficulties. But there was still some discontent and he, in a, um, uh, 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 one of his servants uh, snuck out one night from whatever it was, the palace or the compound or the, the good hut, and uh, went out, and over the course of a few nights, he saw his first sick person, elderly person, and corpse, and the, the Gautama, Siddhartha Gautama was like, what? What's all that? And the, the servant said, that's sick and sickness and aging and death, and the Buddha Siddhartha Gautama said, me too, and the servant said, yeah, you too. And so what happened is uh, Siddhartha Gautama came face to face with, he goes, there is some um, stuff in this world that causes uh, pain to people, and I want to see what that is. I want to get to the root of that. And so he left his wife, he left his child, he left his family, and he went out and hooked up with some wandering um, wise men who were kind of all over the place in those days. They were just teaching spiritual practices and he he learned meditation deep meditation and he even got better than his teachers and then he moved on to um, this other group of practitioners who were aesthetics thinking that the real suffering was this attachment this connection to the body so they did everything they could to just disconnect from the body trying to get away from suffering and you know that caused its own discomfort and great suffering and then after a while he realized when he was on the verge of death he realized this is nonsense this is absolute nonsense so he committed to um he committed to really getting to the bottom of this and he sat and he sat in, in meditation for the longest time until the nature of um of uh, our suffering our discontent was became clear to him and um that's kind of the, the, the basic overall uh, picture. And then when he became enlightened, he, became, he was known as Buddha, which means enlightened. So there were many Buddhas before him. Um, but that's what the enlightened one is, what Buddha means. And, um, uh, and then he went on to teach for the next 45 years. But there are, uh, in Buddhism, Buddha, Buddha lived about 2,600 years ago. And once he died, everything started changing and being interpreted in different ways. 
and Buddhism moved throughout the world and it kind of landed in different places and adapted um, well to many, many of the spiritual practices that were already in place. In, in, in China, it landed with Chan Buddhism and then in, it, in Tibet, it, it kind of joined with some practices that were already there. Um, here, I think I talked about this last week, it, it kind of hooked up with psychotherapy. In the U.S., it's very much aligned with that in, in, in our in our culture here in the West. But um, uh, very often, the one of the first teachings that the Buddha came up with was the idea of the eight, excuse me, the four noble truths, really, which is considered to be the core of his teaching that there is suffering in this world. These the four noble truths: there is suffering in this world, and then the cause of our suffering is the craving for things to be different from the way they are, the craving for pleasure, the wanting the, the yumminess all the time, sensual pleasure, and not just sexual lust pleasure, but all the goods, the best food, the best smells, the best music, the best everything, the one that brings us the most yumminess, um, and our wanting it to be good all the time um, is, the, is the root of our discomfort and our dissatisfaction with the way it actually is, and there is a way out, and that way out is the Eightfold Path. Um, so that's kind of what I wanted to touch on um, today. But then I was reflect, remembering that I read this book last year, which is fucking awesome, um, After Buddhism by Stephen Batchelor. And I really, really, really like Stephen Batchelor. People know Stephen Batchelor, I'm sure they do, yeah. He's, um, he's uh, how his, the subtitle is Rethinking the Dharma for a Secular Age. And he's very much in the secular, secular Buddhist camp. And he wrote, um, he wrote a book many years ago, which is really excellent, called Buddhism Without Beliefs. And his um, memoir is called Confession of a Buddhist Atheist. So you get the gist. He, but he, he studied um, Tibetan Buddhism for many, many years, which is really rigorous. And he was a Tibetan monk for many years. And then he left that and he went to Korea. And he was in a Korean monastery. He was a priest, I believe, in a Korean monastery for many years. And he met, he met a, woman, a, a woman, a French woman who was a nun there, and they left and they're married. Now, and they've been married for many, many years, Martine Batchelor, who's also an excellent teacher and writer in her own right. Uh, and so what Stephen Batchelor has done, and he's made it his, his work over the last several years, he's quite a, quite a great scholar and a linguist. He knows Pali. He knows all these languages. And he has made it his, um, his uh, uh, part of his work to really... Um, disentangle a lot of the mythology that has grown up around the Buddha and really try and get to the core of what the Buddha is actually teaching. Not that we can absolutely say without any, any hesitation that, nope, this is, this is it, this is absolutely the words of the Buddha. There was no, there was no recordings. There was, it wasn't even written down until years after he died. And, and when you think about it, the, the, the lineage that I have been primarily trained in is in the lineage of the elders, the Theravadan tradition. And that purports to trace itself back to the earliest teachings. But um, there were 14 different Theravadan schools you know, that popped up after the Buddha. And only one of those sets of texts are what we have. So really... Who knows? 
who knows? But what they try and do is take what is the what they know are to be the oldest and then go into those suttas, discourses. And linguistically, I love this stuff, I love linguistics, and I used to be an archaeologist, so that's maybe why I love it so much, because it's like going back to the old stuff and trying to piece things. But linguistically, trying to, to date the oldest texts, they do this with the Bible, they do this with many, many things, to try and, try and place the oldest texts and see what were probably later insertions to, to pull that stuff out and really maybe get to the gist of it. And then I think also Bachelor, um, has kind of a, uh, 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 a flavor for what he might have a little bit of an agenda for what he's looking for, but it's something that I actually, actually really think makes a lot of sense. So he looked at the Four Noble Truths, and this, this book is a lot of going into the text. I love it because there's a whole bunch of footnotes in here because, he's, he, as I said, he's this tremendous scholar. And he said, you know, and I listened to a talk that he gave on this as well. And he said he believes that um, calling these teachings the Four Noble Truths is really a, um, uh, it does, does the teaching a disservice. Because what it does is it, you, what you do is you take a teaching and you make it a truth, which means it's something you must believe. You have to take it almost on faith, even though the Buddha said, don't believe it just because I say so. And what he believes we need to do is bring it down to the, uh, to the level where we can just connect with it and relate to it in our everyday lives. Because this Buddhism is a, this practice that I, I um, utilize in my life is something that has an impact on my life that actually makes a difference in my life. And so if you can reframe it um, in a way that is uh, um, helpful and makes sense and, and pragmatic, that's, that's, as I said, I was talking about this last week, really pragmatic Buddhism, pragma the, where the teachings are, I can put it to use in the line at Trader Joe's um, to make my, my life easier. That's absolutely what it's about. It's not, he, Bachelor is taking the metaphysical out of it, you know, and, and it was great because the Buddha even said, the people say, what about your prior life? What about your past life? What about this? What about that? And, and he'd be like, yeah, yo, dude, no, I don't want to talk about that. I want to know right here, right now, what takes you away from suffering, what takes you towards suffering. And suffering is discontent, dissatisfaction, reactivity. I love that using the word reactivity as a translation for dukkha. You know, our, our conditioned response, our instincts, our habits, our, our impulses. So in the Four Noble Truths, as I said, are um, there is suffering. And so instead of this truth of acknowledgement that there is suffering, there's birth and death, it's just, Bachelor says, he, he creates instead of... Um, having the truths out there with capital T's, he thinks they are actually a call to action, a call, a task for us to embrace and embark upon. And so he calls these the fourfold task, rather the fourfold tasks rather than the four uh, noble truths. And the first one is to um, suffer, well, suffering is to be comprehended, that we actually turn towards suffering. 
Instead of in a, just saying, yeah, shit happens. That's my quote of the Buddha, you know, shit happens. That to recognize that there is suffering. And it's our task to recognize it. Recognize our suffering in our own lives. See how we um, have pain in our lives. Oh, thank you. Are you closing the door? Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, it didn't even occur to me. Um, so see how we have this, uh, create this suffering in our lives or have this, um, that there is pain and we, we acknowledge it. You know, we acknowledge the loss. We acknowledge the, uh, the poor treatment. We acknowledge the injustice. We acknowledge it. We acknowledge how it impacts it. We acknowledge how it impacts the world we live in. We make space for it. That's, that's a radical. That's really radical. That's Tara Brock's book, Radical Acceptance, accepting the way it is. So that's the first task that the Buddha asks us. And he says, um, it's, it's an open-hearted embrace of the totality of one's existential situation. Rolls off the tongue. Huh? <laughs> yes, I will do that. I, I wrote it down. I don't have any ideas. An open-hearted embrace of the totality of our existential situation. Just say, yeah, it's like this. This is our situation. I wrote, I, I trained, translated as embrace life. You know, a suffering is to be comprehended. How do we suffer? How is there pain when there's loss? You know, I saw a friend of mine lost a cat the other day, and he posted a picture of, of uh, oh my God, I'm going to cry again. Uh, his, um, he's going to take his cat out to the, the foothills and bury it. And so he had this towel, and all it was a picture. Some of you know Pablo. And he lost his, one of his kitties. And there's a picture of the paw coming out from under a towel and him just holding the paw. And the kitty was in, the, in there, and he's like, I'm the last picture. And I'm like, I'm crying. So it's like, can we hold that sadness? I mean, that's just a little thing, but it shows up. Can we be attuned to it? Can we connect with that and realize, oh, and, and, and you know, I was going like this, because this is why the connection with the body and meditation is so important, because we reattune to the physical experience, the emotions that arise. And so you feel that emotion welling up. You can just feel it coming, and then the tears start. You know, I spent so much of my life not being, no crying, Ooh, you can't see this vulnerability, because it meant something. So the reactivity is, oh, here it comes, nope, suffering, not allowed, not allowed, not allowed. You know, it's good, I got this, yeah, I'm sorry for you, blah, 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 whatever our story is. So can we, can we experience that embrace, that sadness, you know, or anger, there's a shit ton of anger that people are experiencing right now. And experience it, yet not be reactive, yet not let our um, autopilot response take over and push us into doing stuff that we may not want to do, that may not be wise or skillful or beneficial. You know, we, the, second, the second task is to uh, let go of the habitual reaction. 
That's what, it, that's what it says, letting go of habitual reactive patterns of thought and behavior. So it's as simple as thinking. You know, our thoughts are reactive. The judgments we have are reactive. They've been implanted from the time we were the ones in our situation. And, and, and there's generational, there's generational um, uh, habitual patterns as well. I mean, it's, it's big. It's the, it's, the, it's the ocean we swim in. And if we're not paying attention, we're going to continue to do what we've always done, creating havoc, getting lost in greed, getting lost in hatred, getting lost in just being deluded and ignorant, just confused. There's so much confusion and greed and hatred right now running rampant in the world. You can see it. It's on the news if you watch the news. You know, The whole Kavanaugh... I don't know. Thank you. <laughs> I was trying to come up with a word. <laughs> yes. Yes, that is just like so much. The reactivity. You know, the so-and-so says this, and then there's this, this groundswell in opposition. It's like, did any of you stop to think? Did people stop to think? And nine times out of ten, there's no thinking involved. There's just reaction involved. And, and a continuation, a kicking a can down the road, of the of the pain and sorrow and, and stuff that's caused the the whole immigration thing and putting you know taking children from their parents and and putting them in these places and and because the reactivity is hearing it's like immigrants bad it's not individual people it's a wall it's a cardboard cutout that we react to Immigrants bad. Do you know anybody who has immigrated from any other country? Yeah, but they're different, you know. And it, it, it's just this, this, this delusion, and the autopilot response to delusion. There's so much of that going on right now. So to recognize it and say, where do I automatically respond? How do I automatically react to things? Um, you know, as a, I had to, as a, as a. I went through I went through a lot of um, mindful of race training to see as a white person where I have all this reactivity that I don't even know about because it's the culture I was raised in. And it's not that I'm a bad person. It's just that, oh, I was just, this stuff was just kind of plugged into my mind. And to really be willing to say, oh, this is not appropriate. Can I disentangle that? Can I respond or react differently? The things I see. You know, it's it's. Um, we were. I was at a, a thing at USC on Wednesday night, um, and it was about intimate partner violence. It was a. It was like, I think it was a conference or an evening presentation. There were panels and um, speakers on inter, inter uh, intimate partner violence, and this woman was talking about working with gang members and and talking about the the violence. The interpersonal violence that's, but there's so much violence as a part of the culture that it's almost invisible. You know, domestic violence, it's like really the violence on the street is so awful that domestic violence is like, why are you complaining about that when there's that going on? And she's saying that's what she's running up against with the work. So it's just, you know, it's 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 really thick and really deep. Oh, so much of this conditioning that we experience. So the the um, the need for this waking up is is vital, and to 
say, how do I react? How do I respond? How do I just go run on autopilot? Um, you know, and uh, the third, uh, the third one is to uh, a we recognize, embrace our pain and our suffering. See when we're reactive, let go of our reactivity, our habitual patterns. By any, however, we need to do that. And then the third one is recognizing when those reactive patterns have stilled, when they're not present. Because there are times when they're not present. If you, you've all been doing this for a while, so I'm sure you can each touch a point where it's like, oh, I used to do this. I don't do that anymore. The thought may be there, but it just goes by. And so to honor that and recognize that and go, oh, yes, absolutely important. And then the fourth one is the commitment is in, in the Four Noble Truths, it's the Eightfold Path, but um, Bachelor embellishes that by saying it's a commitment to a way of life that emerges from this stillness, this, this, re, this stillness of reactivity that responds empathetically, ethically and creatively to the situation at hand. It's a life bound up with ethical behavior. It's an ethical response. It's a, it's a wise response. It's a compassionate response. It's, it's, he's very much, um, and I think this is true, this is, this is, I think, what people complain about so often when they talk about the mindfulness movement that's sweeping everywhere, that the, that the piece about ethics has kind of been lost. Mm -hmm. That mindfulness to improve productivity, or mindfulness to become a better soldier, or mindfulness to do this so you can you know, be better automatons. It's actually a, a way of life that, that demands ethical behavior. Because when you're behaving ethically, you're, you know, and paying attention, you're removing this, um, this practice of causing harm. And when I was listening to the talk he was giving, I was really appreciating it because I, it, it really jives with a lot of what I, I, I like to think about um, in, in this idea of engaged Buddhism that Thich Nhat Hanh, Thich Nhat Hanh create, coined that term, but it's also... Is it an oxymoron when the two things cancel each other out? Because it's like, if you're practicing this Buddhist path, then you're already engaged. If you're committed to uh, responding ethically and empathetically and, and creatively to the situation at hand, then if you see suffering, perhaps you are called to compassionately respond to suffering. You know, I talked about her last week. I, I love this image of Kuan Yin royal ease where she's at ease but she's the embodiment of compassion where she's ready to jump in at a moment's notice to answer the, the, the suffering and pain of the world. It's really wise, it's really an important um, It's, it's part and parcel of this whole practice. So um, in this short version of this, suffering is to be comprehended we let go of the arising of reactivity, ceasing, recognize when it has ceased, and cultivate the path. Cultivate the path, which is one I'm going to start getting into next week, the path of um, the Eightfold Path, of wise view, and wise intention, and right action, all the ethical behavior. And mindfulness 
Um, meditation is a really important part of this path. It's how we begin to see and disentangle what's going on, how we begin to see where we're caught up. And I, it's a, he says, meditation originates and culminates in the everyday sublime. And the everyday sublime is seeing our lives through the lens of these tasks. It's the sublime that's available to each of us. Let's see, I think there's a quote in here that might be appropriate. Yeah, the everyday sublime is our ordinary life experience from the perspective of the fourfold task. We open-heartedly embrace our, our situation. We let go of our reactivity. We, we acknowledge those moments where the reactivity, where the reactive patterns are stilled and we have a commitment to this way of life that's wise, ethical, and creative. In light of the fourfold task, meditation is the ongoing cultivation of sensibility, a way of attending to every aspect of experience within a framework of ethical values and goals. The everyday sublime is revealed when the mind becomes still and focused through settling into the rhythm of breathing. So we're, we're still ourselves. We breathe. We're able to be present rather than lost in the reactivity, the mind that takes us a million different places. And um, so that's, that is really... I really love this interpretation and this reframing and, and seeing things differently in this, in this way. I think it's really beneficial because it's, you know, it also, Bachelor also talks about um, the nirvana in the present time, which is also taking it out of the metaphysical, and I'm, I'm a huge proponent of this. Nirvana is not something over there to be achieved or attained. Um, it's as it's often thought of because people who don't study Buddhism equate nirvana equals heaven. It's somewhere you go after you die, you get to nirvana. And it's actually, what does he say? It's nirvana is immediately present right here and now as a, as a ground on which to live one's life in this world. Gautama shows that nirvana is not something realized only by devout Buddhists who have spent long years meditating in solitude. But it's present, it's present to everyone right here and right now. When we have this third task of recognizing when the reactivity has ceased, and there's a stillness, and the ability to open-heartedly be with what is, that's liberation. It's not a, pr a promise that. Once you get to nirvana, it's all going to be good all the time. It's the ability to be with what is right here and right now. I find that to be really awesome. Because I have had often um, equated the idea of a good rebirth with the idea of heaven. And if you behave, it's a promise. It's a carrot on a stick. But my experience of these teachings has been, I have had the, I have been able to sit with those things that I have not wanted to be with. 
What is it? When you sit and you meditate, all of those things that you've spent your lifetime keeping down, they start bubbling to the surface. And um, it says we embrace the totality of our situation. And it's another um, definition of equanimity. Another definition of equanimity is that, um, oh my God, I say it all the time, but it's, mm. it's decided to leave my mind. Yeah, no, that's, that's a, yeah, right now it's like this, but there's a, no, a, a, a deep intimacy with our experience. That's equanimity, a deep intimacy with our experience in this moment, right here, right now. That's what this is. And it's not that we get to do this, you know, it's, it's, it doesn't all come at once. We start where we are because we all have our own level of conditioning. We all have our own level of, of reactivity, of history, of trauma. Everybody in this room has had trauma, some to a much greater extent than others. But we all have been impacted by the world we live in. And we have to ethically and kindly and compassionately hold that and be tender towards ourselves as we move through this. You know, again, this is not, we don't set up a, uh, uh, go, yes, this is wise, I like, I'm going to do this path, and then set up a, uh, a path that beats us up when we don't get to it or when we, when we struggle with it. That that's, defeats the purpose. We're kind, we're compassionate, so we bring in the Brahma Viharas, we bring in the heart practices, the loving kindness, the compassion for, for, for ourselves and for others. It's really important. It's really wise. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a, an ability to stay with our moment-to-moment -moment experience. There is no there there. There's no there there, which I heard was actually coined to refer to Oakland. <laughs> but there's a there there now. Um, you know, and he says when we do this, we're going against the stream. I can't say that word, but it, there's a word that the Buddha used, which means we're going against the flow of reactivity that we are conditioned into from day one. Sometimes in the womb, we're conditioned if, we're, if, our, if our mom is like using drinking or using drugs, we've got that to fight against from the day we're born even. So there's a lot of stuff um, that we have to work with. So we start where we are. And we say, you know what, okay, I'm willing to put a toe in the water. And well, you know, there's the, the thing about, um, you know, people who are afraid of spiders, you don't, you don't get them to not be afraid of spiders by throwing them into a room with spiders. You show them a picture of a spider and then you pull it back. You know, so they just kind of get used to the idea. So it's a slow, slow, slow process where we're kind to ourselves, we're gentle with ourselves. Um, yeah, and we, and we see how we... Uh, uh, anyway, and the, um, the teachings of the Eightfold Path, I find, are a way to land, a way to... Um, it's a safety net, it's a place to... Um, It's a place to, um, guide us in how to behave and how to show up and how to maneuver through 
um, this new way of doing business, this new way of, of being in the world. And so I'm going to, over the next few weeks, go through the Eightfold Path and say, how does this support this way of living? How do we, how do, we do this with these teachings? Um, so those are my thoughts on, on this, and I'd love to have any questions or comments or rebuttal. Always up for a rebuttal. And always don't believe it just because they say so. Don't believe it just because it comes out of my mouth. Any thoughts around this? Questions? I've always got a secret idea to work on the truth, actually. <laughs> it feels like a bait and switch kind of. <laughs> it's like it's supposed to give you the answer and it's another nested list, you know? And um, so, but I like, <laughs> I like how, um, how, how you just kind of go to even that sort of things that it's. It's actually not even so much necessarily about each individual path factor. It's just it's like what arises out of the stillness, which then in a way is like how can you not act skillfully out of that? What you're doing probably are you know one or more of the path factors. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I love that bait and switch. I was the four, the, the four foundations of mindfulness, because in the fourth foundation of mindfulness, you had the four noble truths. It's another bait and switch. It's like, wait a minute. And then in there's the eightfold path. Yeah. I hear that. If you were going to rename it, would you rename the, the last part of it, the truth part, or the four nobles, if you had to play with it or modify He calls it the fourfold task. Fourfold task. So they're not truths, they're a call to action. Because because he, he the way he talks about it, he says truths are these these T truths with a capital T. So there are things that must be believed. They are they posit a way that things are. Whereas this is like, oh no, this is like get into it. It's an action that we, we can take. And I always think about it like it's a it's a nice warm overcoat that we put on and we embody rather than, okay, how do I get this? How do I practice this as a good Buddhist? You know, check it off my list. I'm not, I'm not titling it anything. Mm -hmm. For, the fourfold task. Where do you sit with that? Does that, does that land better for you than, say, truths, tasks versus truths? Um... I don't know if I'm that hung up on the word truth versus task, but I like how he um, talks about really, he makes it much, I think, much more accessible in some ways. Because Philip Moffat talks about the Four Noble Truths in his book from um, Dancing with Life, I think it is. And he talks about the 12, you know, the 12 insights where the, each, each of the, the truths, there's the intellectual understanding of it. And the Buddha talks about this too, but there's the intellectual understanding of, oh yeah, there's suffering, there's death, there's that, there's that, almost a, a non-feeling awareness in, intellectually. And then there's the recognition of how you do that in your own life and then the embodiment of it. This is almost the like, no, just jump right in. You know, just jump right in and... and embrace your experience. Um, really just be with it right here, right now. 
So it's, it may be, you know, it may be, um, as with any of these things, it's, it's how your perception, because we all have our own view of things and what makes sense to one person doesn't make sense to another person. Um, so it's, it's all how you see it and you perceive it. So it I may be, I can't remember the, um, the, the term, the phrase, the, you know, just six one, half a dozen of the other of task versus truth for some people. But I just really like, I just like his getting it to be, take the, all the, the metaphysical up on a hill kind of, you know, Ten Commandments written stone flavor of it and put that to the side and have it be something that I'm just going to go out and, and kind of create or move in a way that has this um, ethical, uh, ethical over, overcoat, underpinning, whatever, <laughs> you know, that this ethical holding um, safety net. But this that way of being, I think that's kind of how it fits for me. And the key point that I really love that I that I've been actually talking about for years, and I think the Heartwood Tree, what's his name? Buddha, Buddha Dharma, Buddha Das. I can't always confuse him. He wrote a, a book and talking about it, that that it's right here, right now. Liberation, right here, right now. Under the, under the Heartwood Tree, in the Heartwood Tree. That was the name of the book, I can't remember. But it's, um, it's, it's the freedom that we experience right here, right now. And I'm sure each and every one of you have had those moments of ease where you're just like, there's no, nothing in your mind. You're, you're just at ease. You're just watching the, the rain. You know, th these big um, moments in nature are really good for that type of thing where if you're if you like the beach and you're at the beach and watching the waves break or the rain or in the forest or something that just at ease. There's the stillness. And sometimes you can be still in the middle of a city too. So you don't have to go outside, out into the woods, you know. You don't have to this is the thing. You don't have to seek it. I you know, because then what happens is like you plan the great adventure. I was actually talking to somebody the other day. She went to the beach last week, and she was had this, okay, the expectation of, I'm going to go to the beach, and this is going to be the result, and then this. And none of that happened. And so she was annoyed and angry, and it's like, it's because we set up the expectations that I'm going to go there, and this is going to happen. So it's actually about being with the experience of the moment. I've had moments of bliss in my kitchen. And I'm like, oh, this is nice. I'm going to stay with this as long as it lasts. You know? Just be with it. Just be with it. I think that is what's really important. And then the engagement, when we're present and the engagement, the, the seeing things. And um, in, in this talk he gave, he, he went into the Zen vows of beings are numberless. You know, suffering is... Um, Suffering is endless, I vow to end it. You know, beings are numberless, I vow to save them all. He talked about that as, as this, this engagement with, with our world, that this is also a call to engage with the world and seeing suffering. That as we embrace our own suffering, we are that much more open to the suffering of others. So we're that much more compassionate. 
when we learn to be compassionate to ourselves, we can be that much more compassionate with others. And I've found that to be true, and it's, it's, it's quite extraordinary. And it fits in with my undefended heart stuff, too. <laughs> it seems like from that egoic uh, mini-me that we have up here, that we mind, takes a break, then it's almost like that natural presence is there, and that's sort of where that sort of happens mm-hmm. that I can see for me and myself. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And I, I love that the mini me. Yeah. <laughs> Calling a job. Um and also it's 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 a that if you if you the also in the Zen tradition the what is this beginner's mind. You know, keeping beginner's mind, what is this? What is this? Because we have the preconceived notion, so this is this, but it's like we don't actually know what is this. What is this? So we can keep that that freshness. Then it, it, it's again a wedge against the, the reactivity. It's, you start going into the reactivity, but then if you could go, oh wait a minute, what is this? Then you, you're able to pause, and that's when you have the choice from between reaction and response. So, how has how has um, this practice helped you with your reactivity? Can anybody have a, an example? We're really going to have to start breaking us into groups. <laughs> just doesn't work in the big <laughs> set. All right. <laughs> Anything but. Breaking into the groups, but I do feel like before I was meditating more regularly. I think I more often found myself already like several steps down the road of like negative thinking patterns, basically. And I think that um, I, I, yeah, I really feel like mindfulness or meditating stops that for me. I mean, it didn't stop it from happening, but I'm able to catch it earlier mm-hmm. um, rather than it becoming like. You know, it's like a, a horrible time, and you're like, how did I even get here? Like, what, you know? Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, I think I'm able to track those patterns a little bit. Because it's still maybe not where I'd like it to be, which is like, so, you know, or like catching it immediately, you know? <laughs> but, but again, it's earlier than it was. Absolutely. Thank you. You're welcome, guys. You talked to refer to like that secular mindfulness that you know is used for productivity in the military. Do you think a halfway to that or like midway is when you're bringing mindful self-compassion and metta that some places will do for metta and they'll you know? Enhance the mindfulness, but yeah, that may not bring the ethics, you know, or maybe there's some ethics that comes with the self compassion, mindfulness, that some places are teaching. 
Yeah, you know, it's. I was at a conference a couple of years ago, and they did a um, they did a uh, an investigation. There was a presentation about mindfulness, and they looked at a lot of the the mind. It was a Buddhist conference, so um, Buddhist Insight Network, and so they um, they looked at mindfulness. And, and how it was taught and, you know, the whole gamut of it. So it's easy to say, oh, yeah, it's all this way, make mindfulness, and it's not. There are degrees of ethical uh, teachings that are brought into it, separated from Buddhism, obviously, because it's secular, so they can't, they can't use the term Buddhist teaching at all. But they can bring in ethical behavior, a lot of this, a lot of it does. So, you know, it, I think it depends. I think the mindful self-compassion, the one that comes out of Stanford, does teaching. That's very rooted in Buddhist teaching and very much um, uh, ethical, because I know a couple of people who've gone through that. And I, I listened to that same conference, listened to a presentation on that, and it's really quite, quite, that goes, follows along with these teachings, but again, um, separated out from calling it Buddhism. What is that? Mindful self-compassion. Uh, yeah, I know Inside LA has some teachers who have gone through that, and they do they do teachings in that. Uh, it's a yeah, it was developed up at Stanford. I know I don't know if it was all at Stanford, but I know that they teach it up at Stanford. It's a program that you can take through there. Maybe yeah, yeah, that name's familiar. first precept is do not take another life you know which is broadened out to do no harm don't 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 cause harm so 
because and there's the actual because causing harm is, and killing is pretty awful, but it it creates suffering for you. I would imagine snipers may not sleep well at night, and many of them probably have a lot of drug and alcohol and addiction issues that are associated with. I can't imagine being a professional killer and being, you know, chill. I mean, if you know what I mean. So it also has an impact on you personally and maybe creating, you know, karma, karmically um, not so helpful. So there's, there's the, there's, I say, yeah, because I, I think there's some delusion in there. If you're saying, yeah, I'm, I'm mindfully going to kill people in this job I'm doing because I do, because I, I'm, I'm fine with that. I think there's some delusion in that. So then that's, you know, that would be an investigation as well for the person. But that's, that's just my, my opinion. So, so um, we're out of time. Thank you for being here. Um.